You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 25th of October on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller, coming up on today's programme. We're going to serve the people of this country. We're going to restore their faith in this Congress, this institution of government. Mike Johnson, a nation Googles, becomes the fourth nominee for a new US House Speaker. Will he be the last? Also ahead, Israel's postponed presumable Gaza ground offensive. Later in the show, Indonesians now know the field they'll be picking a president from, and Poland's probable new Prime Minister seeks to renew friendships in Brussels. And... The way we work as democracies, working together, will translate into better living standards. Iceland's new foreign minister and former prime minister tells us how his country fits into a reanimated NATO. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. A couple of weeks ago, most observers of the Middle East would have assumed that an Israeli incursion into the Gaza Strip would be well underway by now. It is not. A number of theories have been advanced regarding Israel's hesitance, concerned for hostages in Gaza, worry about exposing Israel's northern border to Hezbollah, pressure for restraint from allies. In the meantime, the aerial and artillery barrage on Gaza continues as does the diplomatic theatre, with Israel demanding the resignation of UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres after he attempted to contextualise the massacre carried out by Hamas on October 7th. I'm joined with more from Tel Aviv by the journalist and broadcaster Emily Wither. Um, First of all, Emily, to these remarks of the Secretary-General attempting to suggest that, for example, October 7th did not happen in a vacuum, how much anger is there in Israel at those remarks. Hello, Andrew. Well, Israel is furious about those comments. We have to remember for Israelis, they're hurting so much right now. They're calling what happened on October 7th their 9-11. And many groups have released statements today. I'll just pick one of them out for you. The group of hostages and missing people issued a statement to those remarks saying, shame on you for granting legitimacy to crimes against humanity when it comes to Jews. They called the statement outrageous and say it was a, a roundabout way to justify the horrors that were conflicted upon the Jews. But, you know, on the other side of those comments, that those remarks refer to the decades-old occupation of the Palestinian people. This year is now the deadliest for Palestinians in the West Bank in almost 20 years. And looking at Gaza, it's compared to an open-air prison. There's no freedom of movement. This is the fifth outbreak of fighting that we've seen, you know, in, in the last uh, 10 or so years. And over the last few weeks that I've been here, I've found myself thinking again and again about a report that was released in June 2022 from Save the Children. It found that more than half of Gaza's children had contemplated 
suicide. And three out of five children were self-harming. So this was already a deeply traumatized society, where as a result of Israel's blockade and bombings of Gaza, life expectancy for Palestinians there is a full 10 years less than it is for Israelis just living a few miles away. So for those comments by the UN chief, it's very hard for Israelis to hear that right now after such a horrific terror attack. But we also cannot talk about Israel and Gaza and this attack in isolation. Things, as you correctly point out, and as that Save the Children report correctly points out, have been grim in Gaza for many years. They have obviously been much worse in recent weeks. Is it clear, though, why the widely anticipated ground assault on Gaza by the IDF hasn't happened yet? Well, as you said in the intro, there are a couple of theories for that. And it is surprising. When these attacks first happened on October 7th, Israel was very clear they were going to go into Gaza on the ground and they were going to stamp out Hamas once and for all. And me and other journalists, you know, we've seen a huge buildup of troops in the south over the last few weeks of of tanks and, and soldiers. And we were expecting that invasion to happen any day now. But Israel has come under lots of international pressure, not just because of aid to the civilians, but also they're under a lot of pressure now from the families of the hostages. They have, you know, near nightly protests and street demonstrations in Tel Aviv where they call on the government to do more when it comes to the hostages. And there are a lot of concerns that if Israel goes in on the ground, then those hostages' lives are put at further risk. And there was a remarkable statement that came out from the politicians and from the generals saying that they are united and they still trust each other because we have had weeks of reports of disagreements where the army, they want to go in, they want to press on with the operation, but politically, it's very clear that that ground invasion is stalling. Even aside from those concerns about the safety of the hostages, and they are obviously quite reasonable concerns, do you detect any, I guess, squeamishness in Israeli public opinion about the punishment being inflicted on Gaza right now? According to Hamas, at least at least 6,000 Palestinians have already been killed by the artillery and air bombardment of the last few weeks. Uh, Israeli public opinion, as anybody who has spent any time there, knows is very, very far from monolithic. Um, Is there any kind of, I guess, backlash against uh, such action as Israel has already taken? There are a few voices that have spoken out and said that they worry about the civilians inside Gaza. But I would say overwhelmingly, people here in Israel do support a, you know, a ground invasion. They do support the Israeli military trying to take out Hamas once and for all. The very security of Israelis has been shattered. They are stunned that this was able to happen and they want to feel safe again inside their country. They feel threatened from multiple fronts and they want to see a harsh punishment put on Hamas. And so they do support the Israeli military having a strong response. Israelis will tell you that Hamas use civilians as human shields. And we we do know that Hamas is firing rockets from places where civilians live and that Hamas is embedded in the civilian community. And right now it feels to me that Israelis just don't have the space to sort of separate the Palestinians and, 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 and the Israelis. They're thinking about themselves, they're thinking about their security, and they are mourning what many here say was Israel's 9-11. Emily Wither in Tel Aviv, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Sophie Monaghan-Coombs with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. 
Israeli forces intensified airstrikes on Gaza overnight and struck targets in southern Syria, killing eight soldiers and wounding seven more. Israel's army says it struck Syrian military infrastructure amid growing concerns that the war will escalate into a wider regional conflict. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese hopes to make progress on the AUKUS submarine deal when he meets President Joe Biden at the White House. Albanese's four-day US trip comes ahead of a visit to China amid growing concerns over Beijing's influence in the Indo-Pacific. And a potentially catastrophic Category 5 storm has made landfall on Mexico's southern coast. Hurricane Otis could cause destructive waves and heavy flooding in coastal areas, according to the US National Hurricane Centre. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Sophie. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Even by recent wretched standards, the last 24 hours have not been a glorious interregnum for the US Republican Party or its standard-bearer, former President Donald Trump. Three weeks after House Republicans defenestrated their own speaker, Kevin McCarthy, for reasons surpassing the understanding of the sane, they have failed again to anoint a replacement. Yesterday's selection, Tom Emmer giving up after a matter of hours without even proceeding to a vote. Trump, meanwhile, was once again hauled off the golf course to court, this time watching his former fixer Michael Cohen testify in Trump's New York fraud trial, while in Georgia yet another of his former lawyers pleaded guilty to trying to fiddle the 2020 election and appeared poised to flip. Well, I'm joined now by Chris Chermack, our Washington DC correspondent. Um, Chris, first of all, how far are you from being nominated for speaker at this point? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm not. Uh, I, that's a good question. I don't know exactly how to answer it, except to say that Donald Trump even himself at one point uh, said that uh, perhaps Jesus Christ would have to be nominated. So we're more speaking in that kind of level, I would say, than than myself. Um, is it clear what went wrong for Tom Emmer? He seemed in many respects a plausible candidate, House Majority Whip, not obviously bonkers, or was that the problem? That was part of the problem, frankly. Uh, he was uh, one of the one of the uh, congressmen who actually voted to certify Joe Biden's election back in 2020. You could argue that was part of what sank him. He was therefore not seen as a strong. Donald Trump supporter. And of course, as you alluded to in the introduction, Donald Trump came out forcefully against him. That is essentially what sank him. There was an expectation initially that Emmer, uh, that Donald Trump would at least stay on the sidelines of this once Emmer was chosen by a majority of Republicans in the House. But that ended up not being the case. Donald Trump came out specifically against Emmer uh, in a in a in a truth social uh, you know uh, comment, um, calling him a Republican in name only and many other names. Uh, and as a result of that, it was pretty clear that he was he was gone. He resigned uh, shortly after that. Is it the case, though, Chris, that this literally could go on more or less forever? That they could just keep plucking names out of the House Republican caucus, um, well, presumably until the next election. Well, I mean, it absolutely is the case that that could happen. The one thing going against that, I would suggest, is that many Republicans, as flummoxed as they are right now, have said that their own constituents are urging them, are calling them, telling them to get this sorted out. So they are facing pressure from voters. The question still, though, is kind of which side is going to blink first on this? I mean, what we've had now is essentially a repeat of what we had before with Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan, if we can even 
even remember those names anymore, uh, who were the first two that were put up. Steve Scalise won a majority. He had to resign because it was clear he wouldn't get 217 votes. Jim Jordan then, you know, Steve Scalise's allies uh, were upset that Jim Jordan was sort of as the second candidate put forward, and they sank him. We're kind of in that position now where you have Mike Johnson. He is kind of the next man up, the one who had lost to Tom Emmer, but because now Donald Trump has sunk Tom Emmer, Mike Johnson is the one who is next in line, and he supposedly claims he has enough support. The question is, again, whether the moderates this time, if you will, will potentially sink Mike Johnson's candidacy today. That's what we're going to have to see. If that happens, if there is another failure, then yes, this could go on for a long time, although more likely we might end up with Patrick McHenry, this sort of interim speaker, being given powers to handle this at least for a certain amount of time. Well, let's take a look then at former President Trump's escalating legal travails. It is difficult to know where to start, apart from the spectacle of his former fixer testifying against him. We have seen now a succession of his lawyers in Georgia ushering him under the bus and the news that his own former chief of staff, staff rather, Mark Meadows, has testified to a federal grand jury about Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. It doesn't appear to be going well for him, does it? It, it does not appear to be going well, Andrew. At the same time, the only thing I would say is even when you look at, for example, the, the various guilty pleas that we've seen in the Georgia state case by and three of his former lawyers now against him, it's still, as, as is always the case in many of these things, there is a difference between whether you are testifying against Donald Trump or whether you are, you know, pleading guilty for actions you have done yourself. It is still not entirely clear how many of these people who have turned are specifically implicating or are going to implicate Donald Trump for his actions. Mark Meadows might be a stronger case in in that as he is testifying specifically in the, the federal case, but we also just, you know, at this point at least don't know exactly what he's going to say, what kind of impact there is. These trials are ongoing. These trials, um, you know, are something that prosecutors certainly wouldn't have brought if they didn't feel they have a case. And we are now seeing the wheels of that turning, the screws turning, if you will, on Donald Trump. But it still remains open exactly how many of these people will be able to implicate Donald Trump and prove in a court of law that he is guilty. Uh, And just finally to Michael Cohen's appearance opposite his former boss in a New York court yesterday. Cohen, is, of course, himself uh, a convicted felon, and as such, Trump has sought to depict him as an unreliable witness. But did Cohen say anything especially startling? Well, it was, I would say, just quite striking the way that Cohen went after Donald Trump himself, specifically, you know, in a court of law under penalty of perjury, although, as you say, he is somebody who has already faced jail time, talking about the way that Donald Trump had sought to inflate uh, his own value, that he would go into meetings with insurance companies specifically to inflate his own value, to instruct, he would instruct his lawyers to inflate his own value. Those statements, even though this was part of what this case was about. We should stress that this case that Michael Cohen was testifying in was a civil case about whether Donald Trump inflated his value to get better deals from banks and insurance companies. Uh, 
But nevertheless, so he's not facing jail time when it comes to this specific case. Nevertheless, those kinds of deal, those kinds of details, for one, just were quite stark to hear in a court of law so so aggressively against Donald Trump. And two, it's just you have to say, you know that this is something that bothers Donald Trump. In some ways, you could argue almost more than the criminal stuff, or at least this is the trial that he wanted to be present at. He hates this idea that he was he was lying about his value and his wealth. So that that's something that really puts this trial and Michael Cohen's comments on the, the front lines of all of these trials that Donald Trump is facing. Chris Chermack, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. This is The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. In February, the world's third largest democracy will choose a new president. Indonesia's current president, Yoko Widodo, is prevented from running by term limits, though machinations are afoot to ensure a measure of continuity. His son, Gibran Rakabuming Raka, a presently mayor of Surakarta, will be the vice presidential running mate of current defence minister, Prabowo Subianto. Well, I'm joined now by Aaron Cook, Jakarta Pays. Jakarta-based, rather, journalist and author of Dari Mullet K. Mullet, a newsletter about Southeast Asia. Um, Aaron, first of all, there needed to be, did there not, a special court ruling on Raka's eligibility to serve as vice president? Yes, and it's been very divisive. So last week, the Constitutional Court, which is, uh, just to add an extra layer to it, headed up by uh, Gibran's uncle by marriage, um, they moved to... uh, somewhat repeal a decision from 2017, which instituted a minimum age for uh, presidential and vice presidential candidates. Um, it was currently at 38. Gibran is oh, at 40, rather. Gibran is 36. And they've said, OK, if you're above the age of 35, but with enough uh, public life experience, then we'll let this one slide. And of course, Gibran's been the mayor out there in Surakarta for a few years now. So he's he's gotten through no problems at all. It's been very divisive, though. Uh, a lot of talk about uh, shoring up the Jokowi legacy and extending his own dynasty. It's kind of uh, played against what Jokowi's always put himself forward as over the last 10 years as, you know, the the outsider man, the man who is going to break these sorts of uh, structures that have kept the elite in, in power since the fall of Suharto in 98. So it's been very disappointing to a lot of voters. I mean, presumably Subianto thinks there is some value uh, still in the Jokowi brand, but is the incumbent president still broadly popular? I guess the obvious question being, if he could run again, would he win? Yes, Jokowi is still immensely popular. There, uh, There's a movement that has since died out, but up until about July this year, there was a huge campaign to get uh, Jokowi to run for a third term, which is against the Constitution, but there was a bit of a push to change the Constitution to allow that, kind of arguing, you know, he got ripped off with two and a half years of the pandemic. Let's give him another go to keep the, the ship right. Uh, that was not successful in the end. Um, but we have seen since then the all three of the presidential candidates, both both Prabo and um, Ganja, who's also closely linked to to Jokowi, have uh, said that they'll be continuing his programs as if, if successful going forward. Uh, Anise Baswiden, who's 
got his own personal beef with Jocko. He hasn't been quite so strident, but is increasingly saying, you know, yes, I'll move the Jakarta capital as well, move the capital out of Jakarta as well. I'll continue the economic projects, the infrastructure. So I think uh, the legacy of Jocko is an enormous one on this on this election. I mean, Subianto has had two previous cracks at this. What is his basis for thinking this will be any more successful? Is he any less a divisive a character than he generally has been? Uh, that's a very interesting question. He had an excellent uh, kind of funny speech today talking to supporters right after he registered his third uh, nomination for president. And he said quite bluntly, you know, I, I haven't won before Everybody thinks I'm old. Everybody thinks I shouldn't have this. But there is a very much a view that this is his time. Um, there's He's bizarrely popular among millennial voters, which is the largest cohort in Indonesia now, um, and Gen Z voters as well. And those sort of voters between 18 and 40 or so have all have been largely saying, you know, we think it's it's time to give the guy a chance. And I think the, the move with Gibran, given his age, might be to sort of balance that the old and the new. Well, just finally then, aside from the desirability or otherwise of uh, establishing some kind of Jokowi dynasty, what are likely to be the actual main issues that people will make their choice on? That's a, a very good question. I think all of Indonesia has been asking themselves that so far. It has been, uh, we're still four months out, but it has been a noticeably uh, issue-less uh, campaign period so far. The economic recovery after the pandemic is a major, major concern, particularly um, among those millennial and Gen Z voters who are trying to build up their careers and get back on the path after after the pandemic. So I imagine um, that we'll be seeing a lot of that. We may also see a bit of uh, foreign policy um, take on prominence as well. The, the issue in Palestine and Israel, of course, is very, very important to a lot of um, Muslim Indonesians, which make up 80% of the country. To come out strongly in support of Palestine is always a good move. Uh, Anis Baswedan has already promised that he'll, he'll fix the situation if elected next year. So I expect we'll see a lot of that as well in the coming weeks. Aaron Cook, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. This is The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Poland's probable next Prime Minister, Donald Tusk, is visiting Brussels, a city he knows well from his stint as President of the European Council. Tusk is pretty obviously seeking a reset of Poland's relations with the EU, which have been largely soured during the recent hegemon of the Conservative Law and Justice Party, which found picking fights with the EU electorally useful, at least until the recent election. Well, I'm joined now by Jaroslav Koish, the editor-in-chief of the media group Cultura Liberalna, assistant professor at the University of Warsaw and author of the recent book, The New Politics of Poland. Um, Yaroslav, how relieved will Brussels be to see Donald Tusk uh, arriving as Poland's potential new prime minister? Ah, please, please allow me to paint a political la- landscape to begin <laughs> with, because, you know, it's uh, it's still unprecedented. Before we are, we, we are going into the details, please let me remind you that in this Troubled times for democracy, the good news came from Poland. <laughs> Quite unexpected, isn't that? 
Uh, well, there hasn't been a lot of good news in that respect from Poland in recent years, no. But what are Tusk's priorities? Is it just about unblocking uh, all those frozen EU funds, or is the symbolism of this trip important as well? Both, both, but uh, the symbolism is not enough. In fact, what we have discovered after these uh, wonderful elections is, uh, on the one on the one hand, that um, the the law and justice government has left a legal minefield uh, for uh, the new government, and in fact, to uh, to to undo this uh, illiberal democracy is not going to be easy, to say the least. And this is. On, it, it, this, there, this is directly linked to to that subject of our conversation because, in fact, Donald Tusk is going to Brussels to talk about the post-pandemic recovery fund, which is directly connected to the legal minefield left by the law and justice government. Because, in fact, these are the huge money that were promised uh, in the uh, the um, post-pandemic times. And uh, before it all ended up in huge pan-European rule of law quarrel, it ended up that Brussels said no to the law and justice government. We are not going to to, uh, let this stream of money flow to Poland unless you take up some legal steps that are necessary to uh, provide the uh, independence of judiciary. As they were reluctant to do so for a variety of reasons, eventually it turned out that those huge sums of money uh, were frozen for Poland. Just before we get on to uh, Tusk's chances of getting hold of that money and finding a way to spend it in Poland, is there still any doubt at all about whether he will become prime minister? Because this isn't quite a done deal yet, is it? Well, this is this is exactly what what I have. Uh, I'm trying to describe as as the legal minefield left by the law and justice. In fact. The point is that, uh, yes, we have these beautiful elections and the, the, the victory of democracy is uh, cannot be denied. Yet uh, now lawyers are, are entering into the game and they, they really moving like suppers. They are, we are discovering more and more legal minds. And uh, one of them is that it cannot be uh, as easy as one could expect to have the new government. Because, in fact, the, we have still uh, uh, President Andrzej Duda, who is associated with uh, the law and justice milieu, and he can, for the sake of giving more time to the previous government, uh, he can simply uh, ask uh, Mateusz Morawiecki to form a new government only for the sake of uh, having more time in power. And these are the weeks that are of importance for the law and justice, again, for a variety of reasons. But uh, uh, the new government by Tusk, and here we know that the the opposition has already reached a consensus, uh, the new government could come uh, to uh, could be formed in December. So, you know, it's it's quite a time. Yaroslav Koish in Warsaw, thank you for joining us.
This is The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. And finally on today's show, the former US Navy airbase at Keflavik in Iceland has become busy once again with NATO military visitors. In August, three American B-2 bombers touched down and four F-16 fighters and 100 accompanying personnel arrived yesterday. Iceland appears poised to resume its position as a keen NATO way station. At the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik last week, I spoke to Iceland's recently installed foreign minister and former Prime Minister Bjarni Benediktsson. I began by asking whether Icelanders needed to get used to the idea of an enlarged foreign military presence. Well, that that, that uh, can certainly not be excluded, that we will see the need for more uh, temporary presence from time to time. Uh, but uh, permanent presence is not being discussed at the moment. What we've seen is uh, since the base was closed, the U.S. base, which we had here, uh, a lot of things have changed in the world and tensions have arisen. Again, uh, of course, uh, milestones uh, such as the invasion into Ukraine are, are of importance. But even prior to that, we had seen more activity in the oceans around Iceland, which gave reasons for concern. So... On the grounds of the bilateral agreement, I think we had already seen a new interest in the potential that uh, the Kepler Airport has to offer. And uh, this has to do with, uh, for example, the submarine traffic that mm. we've that we've seen uh, increase in the last decade or so. I think we have already seen a, a big change. And as you mentioned, the investment that is taking place at the moment in, in and around uh, Keplerk Airport is a signal of what uh, the new times look like. Leaving aside the, the, the obvious ones, which are concerning every foreign minister at the moment, those things like Ukraine and the Middle East, what do you maybe see as likely to be your priorities closer to home? Well, at the moment, I mean, we're... Um as we are speaking here at the Arctic Assembly, mm. in the Arctic Circle Assembly, I think Arctic matters will continue to be a priority matter for us. The security and sustainability, peace in the, in the region. We also have a lot to offer in, uh, in a world which is seeking uh, for a green energy transition. As we uh, very early uh, last century started investing in uh, geothermal, so uh, with electricity being um, drawn from hydraulic uh, power plants, uh, we have knowledge, uh, we have experience that we have to offer and we want to use our foreign service as kind of a corridor for sharing that experience with others. But um, it is our participation in uh, international uh, organizations, which is always uh, paramount and uh, and the good cooperation with our neighboring countries. This is this is uh, at the forefront. Do you have any concerns that the Arctic itself might become, uh, if not any time soon, but one day an arena of conflict? Because obviously something that has changed is that that idea of the Arctic as a, a broadly happy cooperative family has been ended by the fact that no one's really speaking to Russia anymore, uh, that the Arctic Council is now seven NATO or soon-to-be NATO countries mm. plus Russia, and that... Russia does now look like an adversary in the Arctic in a way that it maybe didn't two years ago. Well, I think we, we've started off from a, from a strong point. I mean, uh, there is cross-country uh, understanding that we need to maintain uh, the, the Arctic as a low-tension area. Mm. Uh, is that 
100% realistic, we'll, we'll have to see. But that, that's, that's where we start from. This is our aim, to maintain the Arctic as a low-tension area so that our other goals can also be met. Um, but uh, at the moment, as you say, there is uh, in the Arctic Council the issue with uh, uh, the invasion. And uh, therefore, uh, Russia is a little bit, uh, let's say, marginalized at the moment, even though scientific work is still being done. And we hope that we can continue doing the research and uh, scientific cooperation that is key uh, in the Arctic Council work. Uh, and uh, we just have to believe in a more peaceful future where where we will at the end of the day, even though we are uh, at the time dealing with the situation uh, regarding the invasion, uh, that we will succeed. When you and other Arctic leaders or Nordic or Scandinavian leaders gather together, is there ever any kind of, I guess, frustration that the rest of the world can't be like this, that other countries elsewhere in the world can't just get together and have what to the rest of us seem like fairly rational, pragmatic, reasonable conversations? Well, I, I'm not sure if I, if I would say there is frustration, but I think we are very well aware that we can give a good example. Mm. And I think that we also have a duty to do that. And at the end of the day, it's about living standards. It's about peace. And, uh, you know, as, as former finance and economics minister, I uh, sometimes was involved in discussing those indexes which are around well-being of people. You know, mm. when you uh, go from measuring quality of life based on GDP per capita and you start talking about security, I mean, how well connected are you with your family members and how secure do you feel uh, with regards to your job or just at your home? Uh, how is your access to health services and all of those things? Now, we are a region which can offer the best uh, living standards on those measures as well as those that rely on GDP. And uh, on those well-being indicators, uh, I think we can, we can show very clearly and statistically that the way we work as democracies working together will translate into better living standards, standards and that hopefully mm. will get other uh, enthusiastic about the ways they manage their, their societies. That was Iceland's Foreign Minister Bjarni Benediktsson. For more from the Arctic Circle Assembly, do tune in to Saturday's edition of the Foreign Desk. That is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing returns tomorrow at midday UK time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>